Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 62 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Keith Strope, attorney by trade and founder of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, also known as the acronym NORMAL. Keith has spent his entire life lobbying for the rights of marijuana smokers. While running normal from 1970 through 1979, Keith helped drive 11 states to decriminalize minor marijuana offenses. But that's just the beginning of the story. Today, we get the chance to learn so much more from Keith. Keith, in my opinion, is an icon and a legend with regard to the history of cannabis in the United States. I first met Keith when I was invited to a panel uh, for uh, LA Normal. I thought I was being brought in. Uh, I thought I had a lot of street cred because I had five years of experience filling C-level roles. And when I met Keith, I started realizing in that panel how much depth, how much knowledge, and how long he'd been uh, fighting for the rights of cannabis users and cannabis in the cannabis industry. You're going to enjoy uh, this episode with Keith Strope. So after graduating from Georgetown Law, you went to work as a staff counsel for the National Commission of Product Safety. Why did you take this role on in the first place? Well, the simple answer is it ended up providing me with a way to avoid the Vietnam War. But let me explain a little more. Uh, When I graduated law school in 68, it was the height of the Vietnam War and the height of the anti-war demonstrations. Uh, Like most men of my generation, uh, well, in fact, at that time, it was prior to the draft lottery. So all males, 18 or older, if you were not a full-time student, you were subject to the draft. And so for many of us, our full-time pursuit began to be to try to find a way to avoid Vietnam, try to find a way out of it. I ended up with the uh, help of some lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild that were teaming up to help dissident people stay out of the war. And they offered me two or three options. Uh, One of them was to go to Canada. And the problem there was uh, you never knew if you'd ever be allowed back in the country. Canada has had a long history of of letting American dissidents uh, go up there and hide out if they wanted to. But again, you didn't know if you'd ever be able to come back. And that was a pretty big decision to make at that young age. Uh, They also offered to put me in touch with some uh, psychiatrists in Baltimore. I lived in Washington, D.C., Um, who would say that I was gay. And back then, it wasn't don't ask, don't tell. If you were gay, they didn't want you in the army. So I thought that wasn't a bad option. The problem was I was married and had a young child, and my wife just would not (laughs) settle for that. So they ended up coming up with another option. There's something called a critical skills deferment under the Draft Act that said if the work you were doing on the home front was important to the health, safety, and welfare of the country, uh, then rather than going off to war, you could keep that, you could stay where you were for those two years, uh, would be the equivalent of your time in the service. I had been offered a job by this National Commission on Product Safety. It was a result of some work of consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Uh, Ralph had come to town 
He'd published a book on the unsafe aspects of the car bear automobile, Unsafe at Any Speed, the book was called. And uh, he had begun to branch out into doing other product safety uh, activities. And so uh, along with uh, Senator Warren Magnuson from Washington State, he had managed to get this bill passed to create this presidential commission. Well, because I graduated from Georgetown, they offered me, I think they hired two Georgetown law graduates and two Harvard law graduates. So it sounded important. It wasn't that important, but it sounded important. And it was enough that my draft board, indeed, about two weeks before I was supposed to report for the draft, I'd already passed my physical and et cetera, um, they extended me the critical skills deferment. So I spent two years, instead of in Vietnam, down at the heart of 16th and K in Washington, DC, learning about public interest law. Um, I'd never really heard of that. I thought at the time that when you graduated law school, you went back to your hometown and set up law practice and probably got rich and had a boring life. I didn't realize, but uh, Ralph helped define what is now generally called public interest law, where you use your legal skills and your legal education to try to impact public policy rather than simply to represent the interest of a handful of clients. So during those two years, uh, I spent a lot of time working around Ralph Nader. I admired what he was doing enormously. And so by the time the commission ended two years later, I was too old to be drafted. So for the first time, I had a choice in my life. What do I really want to do? And I was really exhilarated by this idea of public interest law. I had first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School in 1965. So by this point, I'd been smoking for about five years. It was becoming more and more important to me. Uh, and so I said, I'd like to do public interest law, but it's not product safety. I want to legalize marijuana. And so I pulled together some friends and colleagues and we found it normal in late 1970, uh, about 50, 51 years ago now. And tell me when you founded normal, I mean, I, I, I'm making some assumptions here, but I know a little bit more about normal than probably our, our average guest that will be uh, listening to this. But what what was the main objective in starting? Was it to legalize marijuana? Like, did you you were in your head thinking, "Hey, we're going to eventually legalize marijuana"? Is that I mean, is that what you're yes, thinking? We, what we wanted to do was to end the criminal prohibition of marijuana. In other words, we we weren't necessarily trying to turn on the world. It wasn't a pro pot effort, at least in our minds. It was an anti prohibition effort. We we thought. There was no basis to treat responsible marijuana smokers like criminals, but yet uh, we were arresting, uh, oh, I think back when we started, maybe about 300,000 Americans a year were arrested on marijuana charges. And, um, and by the time, oh, about 10 years ago, when we hit the peak, we were up to almost 900,000 Americans arrested every year simply for smoking pot. And for a lot of them, it destroyed their careers. They, they were kicked out of college. They couldn't get student loans. They couldn't get jobs, et cetera. So uh, it, it seemed to be an incredibly important issue involving personal freedom for my generation. And so uh, I was delighted to take it on. And of course, I, I recognized a lot of people were uh, acting as if I might be wasting my law degree or I might be wasting my life. You know, why would you spend all that time getting a law degree and then turn around and, and uh, wipe yourself out by legalizing marijuana or by uh, being identified with it? But it didn't seem that way to me. As I said, for my generation, uh, marijuana was really associated with anti-government activities. We, 
we felt it wasn't just a war in Vietnam that we opposed. It was a lot of other things that the government was behind, including marijuana prohibition. Got it. Man, that's fascinating. How I'm trying to, I, I wasn't born yet, and I'm not saying that to make you feel any older, but I, I, I uh, wasn't born until 1975. But how much opposition was there? Like, I, I, I'm picturing, like, you got to be a pretty bold person to take that stance at that point, you know, in, and, but tell me, like, tell me the, the, you know, how, how, how much opposition there was, how much pushback there was. I mean, were people threatening you? Partly, uh, partly it required one being bold, but also a lot of naivete. I mean, frankly, I was young and I was idealistic. I remember someone asking me during those early years how long I thought it might take us to achieve our goals. And I, th- I don't know why I felt the need to try to answer it, but I did. And I think what I told them was it might take as long as a decade. That was in 1970. Well, here we are 51 years later and we're still not completed, although we've made a hell of a lot of progress. But to show you where we were at the time, Gallup poll for the first time asked the American public in 1969, the year before we started normal, the question of how many Americans favor marijuana legalization. Before that, they didn't even think the question was important enough to ask. Well, the answer was at that time, 12%. 88% of the country were opposed to what we were trying to achieve. So obviously, it, it was a, a big uphill climb, especially during those early years. But again, because of age and naivete and um, you know youthful uh, ambition, I suppose, it just seemed to us like that meant the work we were trying to do was more important. You know, the fact that most people were uh, misinformed about marijuana, thought it was more dangerous than it was. They were products of the reefer madness uh, generation. And so the real opponents when we started were, were a lot of people of my generation and older, younger Americans along the way. Uh, ended up being more familiar with marijuana. So as the years went on, we began to pick up more and more support. And today, by the way, that same Gallup poll just found 70% of the American public favor full legalization, not just medical use, full legalization. And that's always been fascinating to me because I think when we started, we felt that um, if we were going to end marijuana prohibition, we probably had to turn on a majority of the American public in the sense that we weren't sure they would ever support legalization unless they were a little more familiar with marijuana. Now, the reality is that's not what happened at all. Today, there are roughly 14% of the American public identify as current smokers, although roughly 50% acknowledge they've smoked at some time in their life, they've at least tried it. So what we did and the reason that we're finally winning over the period of those five decades, uh, we won the hearts and minds of a majority of the American public. We didn't have to turn them on. They didn't have to smoke marijuana. They came to realize that prohibition caused more harm than the use of the drug itself. And that's why we're winning uh, several days a year now. Oh, man, such an amazing story. Tell us, tell us about what it was like and the, both the struggles and how, what was it? Tell us about the progress you made in decriminalizing uh, minor marijuana offenses in the 11 states. Like what is, what states well, were they a, and, and how, how did you get there? Yeah, that was a fascinating phase. Again, we started normal in late 70. So we were just getting started in early 71. 
when the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse was created. It was created, incidentally, uh, by former uh, Congressman Ed Koch, a former New York mayor later when he became more conservative. But when he was in Congress, he was actually a progressive. And uh, Nixon was passing the Controlled Substances Act, which was a terrible act. It's still a terrible act. It's still on the, the books federally. But the one good part about it is uh, this provision that established the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. Now, that was a presidential commission where the president picked nine members and Congress picked four from among the Congress itself. So you had a 13-member commission. We didn't expect much from it because if, if President Nixon, who hated marijuana and just he railed against it constantly, if he were appointing nine people, we figured, you know, we're not going to get much out of this commission that's going to be helpful. But over the course of the year when they were studying marijuana, of course, I testified myself and I got former Attorney General Ramsey Clark in to testify on our behalf. And um, I began to get to know some of the commissioners and there were a handful of them who were really quite honorable and high-minded and were doing their best to get to the truth. They even, for example, they felt, held hearings at some point because they realized that most of the 13 members of the commission had never seen marijuana, had never smoked marijuana, had never seen others smoke marijuana. So they set up a couple of private sessions at private homes. In this case, I think it was in LA and um, invited some um, adult marijuana smokers to come over and just relax and smoke marijuana and let them form their own opinion. At any event, at the end of that first year, when they came out with their report on marijuana policy, uh, they shocked Nixon and all the rest of us by suggesting they didn't have the courage to call for full legalization in which you'd set up retail stores like we're doing now. But they at least recognized that 90% of the arrests that were occurring for were for simple possession and use, less than an ounce of marijuana in most cases. And so they recommended that we eliminate all penalties for the personal possession and use of marijuana. They even recommended that we allow adults to share marijuana for no remuneration, because that's in fact what the culture did. They, they found out that we, all, we don't sit at home alone and smoke a marijuana cigarette. We get together with friends and share a joint. Um, so when that report came out, unfortunately, the commission went out of business. And so there was no implementation of that. So what Normal saw that as is an enormous opportunity. We took that report and went nationwide, any state where we could identify a young legislator who was willing to introduce a marijuana decriminalization bill, which is what they became, became known as, uh, we would fly in expert witnesses, I would testify, but we had a whole stable of former prosecutors and, and um, uh, pediatricians and people with great standing and credibility. At one time, he even had the former number two DEA agent, John Finlater, was actually one of the people that testified for us in several states. So whereas if the young legislator on his own had to push that bill, um, he might get ridiculed, he might lose support, he might look like he was a radical or on the fringes. But when we brought in our group of people and put on a really professional hearing and had all kinds of press, uh, it obviously gave a, a lot of courage and it buoyed up those efforts. So we weren't sure who was gonna be, which was gonna be the first state, but we had bills introduced starting in 73. And the first state happened to be Oregon. And I was there when it passed. In fact, it was wonderful. Uh, 
uh, Earl Blumenauer, who's now a member of Congress and one of our strongest supporters for legalization, was actually a state legislator at the time in Oregon who helped get that passed. But between 73 with the state of Oregon and 78 when Nebraska adopted decriminalization, we had a total of 11 states that stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. And we were on a roll. We thought within just a few years, we would surely at least have decriminalization nationwide. Well, we, we learned that uh, public attitudes sometimes can change. They may go along for quite a while where you feel like you're on a roll and then all of a sudden you look over your shoulder and you notice that the folks are heading in the other direction. Starting in 1978, the Gallup poll uh, result showed that public support for legalization actually began to drop a few points and it dropped uh, all the way until 1990. We went 18 years without a single statewide victory. Uh, and when we did get a victory again, uh, it was actually in 1996 when California, first by voter initi uh, initiative, legalized the medical use of marijuana. The issue had morphed from one of decriminalizing marijuana to one of legalizing it for medical use. And of course that started the modern era that then led to full legalization starting in 2012. Wow, this is, uh... This is amazing stuff that so many people don't know. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing. First of all, how 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 well were you guys funded? Like, I mean, were you well, we how were, how were you making all this well. happen? Uh, when when I first started the group, uh, I didn't know where I was going to get funding at all. But I, you know, I knew some liberal and progressive foundations in and around Washington, and so I sent funding proposals to all of them, and they were all very. Uh, generous in, in spirit, but no one was putting up any money. I even went to ACLU, in fact, and suggested, would you guys consider this as a, as a project for ACLU to take on? And the head of ACLU at the time, a man named Arie Nair, uh, Arie said, Keith, we've got our hands full. You know, we're defending the, the Ku Klux Klan and all kinds of difficult cases around the country. He said, so I don't think we can take this on with for ACLU. Now, since then, they've become very strong advocates for legalization. But he offered to serve on our advisory board so that we have some of ACLU's credibility. Well, in that first few months when I was looking around and trying to figure out where to get funding, um, one of uh, the Nader's Raiders, the original young lawyers that would come in and work with Ralph Nader, we had all become friends because we were all part of the public interest community, um, asked me at one time if I had applied for funding with the Playboy Foundation. And frankly, I didn't even know they had a foundation. I was like most kids my age. I, I think I probably was caught with a copy of Playboy under my mattress when I was a teenager, <laughs> but I didn't know anything about their foundation. Well, it turns out that um, I wrote them. Uh, I found out later that former attorney General Ramsey Clark, who was working with me, also put in a good word, and he and Heff were good friends. But um, so they sent someone out from the Playboy Foundation to meet with me, I think, just to see if it was a serious effort and whether they wanted to be associated with what we were doing. And then um, fairly quickly invited me out to, to the Playboy Mansion to meet with, the play, with Hefner and the Playboy Foundation. And as a result of that first visit, um, they got back in touch with me and offered me $5,000. Well, I was, frankly, I was looking for 50,000 or 100,000, you know, I was thinking I had to at least pay myself a salary and I was gonna need uh, an assistant or a secretary. <laughs> there was gonna be phone calls. 
and they asked for 5,000. I thought, man, I don't know if I can even take this because I'll run through that money the first two months. But uh, a woman named Margaret Standish was the executive director of the Playboy Foundation. And she said to me, she said, she said Keith, Hef is really behind this. The foundation's really behind it. We think it's a great project. So take the money and show us what you can do and, and we'll be good for some more funding down the line. Well, and as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. Within a few months, Playboy was giving us $100,000 a year in cash. They were giving us, for the first 10 years of the organization's history, a full-page ad in the magazine twice a year. And back then, they had a circulation of, I think they had a, a subscription rate of 6 million, but a, a circulation of 24 million readers. So you can imagine when you had a full-page ad twice a year, I mean, it brought in a lot of cash in addition to their 100,000. But perhaps even more importantly, uh, they they covered the work we did. If, if we were able to identify as we did different times, someone serving a 20 year sentence, some college kid, you know, who'd been set up on for half an ounce of marijuana and given a 10 or 20 year sentence, we'd fly lawyers in, find a basis to appeal the sentence. And once we got them out, Playboy would cover it. And so all of a sudden we began to develop a following around the country of people who, instead of thinking about us as a bunch of potheads, began to think of us as a bunch of freedom fighters. We were a version of ACLU just focused on marijuana policy. Man, this is amazing stuff. To, to even think that people are getting sentences like that for an ounce of marijuana in this day and age, I think anybody uh, would you know kind of scoff at that. I mean, that's that's just ridiculous. But if it wasn't for you guys pushing through and, and fighting this, uh, we might not be where we're at today. So this is, uh, again, I, I'm honored to have this uh, conversation. So so somewhere around, and I'm, I'm kind of reading through, hopefully you're, uh, you're okay with me getting into any conversation. I think that of you course. are, but uh, of so somewhere around 1979, you run into some challenges with pushback from Peter Bjorn, uh, Bourne, the uh -huh. Carter administration drug advisor with regard to spraying marijuana fields with the pesticide Paraquat. Is that how, is that That's pronounced correct. right? Paraquat, yeah. So tell uh, me how this unfolds. Cause obviously this, this changed and pivoted your career and your position at normal, but like explain to me how it unfolded and, and sure. it, it's all but, public but information, off, but I'd love to hear it straight from you. Peter Bourne and I were actually friends. Uh, he was a consultant at a group called the Drug Abuse Council, where I also was a consultant. It, uh, obviously, Normal did, couldn't pay me a lot of money, so it was nice to have somebody offer, I don't know what we had, you know, a couple thousand a month as a consultant fee or something. But I got to know Peter because we both were consultants for that organization. And then when Jimmy Carter was running for president, uh, Peter Bourne was his main drug advisor. And in fact, once uh, once Carter was elected, he was the equivalent of the first drug czar. They didn't call him drug czars back then, but that's what he was. So um, it, it was all very positive, and he and I maintained our relationship, and he used to periodically invite me over to the White House, and we'd talk over a list of items that we had on our agenda. But at some point, when the government began to spray Paraquat to kill um, a marijuana just across the Mexican border, we began to get reports that people were taking that marijuana, apparently the Paraquat turned it gold or yellow, and they were selling it as Acapulco gold. If, uh, you may not recall that, but there was a time when uh, all the good marijuana in this country was imported from other places, and it was, <laughs> Acapulco gold was considered among the best. 
So we were really upset that people were going to be poisoned. And a paraquat's so deadly that just a couple of drops under the tongue can be fatal. So I went over and met with Dr. Bourne and said, you know, you guys can't do this. And he was sort of, I was surprised uh, how, uh, how strongly he tried to defend it. Because uh, he said, well, it's illegal, Keith. I said, well, I know it's illegal, but you couldn't shoot us just because it's illegal. And you shouldn't be able to poison us just because it's illegal. It's one thing if you want to destroy the marijuana and make sure it never comes across the border. And he said, oh, I don't think any of it does. And so I said, well, why don't we find out? Because they used to, on a, I think they probably still do, but on a monthly basis, they would analyze the marijuana they, they seized along the U.S.-Mexican border. And so... For the next 60 days or so, uh, Dr. Bourne had him check the marijuana to see if any of it was contaminated with paraquat. Well, it was. It wasn't high. I can't remember precisely, but say it was 18% of the marijuana they confiscated was, was in fact contaminated. So I expected Dr. Bourne would say, okay, we'll, we'll stop. But we agree with you at this point. But he didn't. Instead, he still took the position that, well, Keith, it's, a, it's illegal then you just shouldn't, shouldn't be smoking. <laughs> I said, Peter, come on, you can't do this. So it obviously led to a serious um, breakdown in terms of our personal relationship. Then what happened was at some point we were holding a big party, 70, I think it was 78, could have been 77. Those years all merged in my mind now. <laughs> mind now. Um, and we had several hundred people. It was a big party at, uh, in conjunction with our national conference we held here in Washington. And there was a live band playing music. And there were, uh, you know, anybody who, who was connected in any way with the marijuana legalization movement would come into town for these events. We'd only have a couple of them a year, but they were, uh, they were lovely events to be at. Well, all of a sudden, we're, we have this group of four or 500 people and someone comes running up to me and says, Keith, Dr. Bourne is at the front door. And I said, Jesus, I mean, first off, I was surprised if you we were coming. I would have expected him probably to call me and let me know, and I could have been prepared for it, but that's all right. I was still glad to have him. I was sort of flattered that he would come to the normal party. And of course, as he came in and people began to recognize him, everybody there felt like they'd been blessed. Here was a president's drug advisor coming to a normal smokeout, basically, where you know you could hardly breathe and the air was so thick with marijuana smoke. But at some point, a mutual friend, a, a woman, um, came up to me and said, Keith, Peter said he wouldn't mind doing a line of coke. Now, my, my mindset at the time, again, now this is the late 70s, there was a lot of cocaine around it. I went through a couple of years of doing a, a good bit of cocaine. I finally decided it just wasn't working for me. So I quit doing it. I haven't been around it in for 40, 50 years. But at the time, uh, it wasn't that strange for somebody to want to know if there was anybody having cocaine in their pocket. So I knew a couple of friends of mine who ran bars here in town that were hot spots. Uh, I knew they usually had some Coke in their pocket. So I walked over to one of them and said, do you guys have any, any Coke with you? If you do, Dr. Bourne said he wouldn't mind doing a line. They said, well, sure. Well, the only place we had that was private was up on the third floor. And to get there, you had to walk in the stairway that was all open. So here you have several hundred people watching the drug czar, myself, and a few other hip looking dudes walking up to this private room where 
Hunter Thompson was there. Uh, Christy Hefner was there. I mean, it was kind of a place for the celebrity attendees to hide out if they wanted a little privacy. So we walked in and everybody said hello. And we laid a little cocaine out on a, a tray and passed it around. It was, it was no big deal other than he was the president's drugs, uh, drug advisor, drug czar. So um, we then went back downstairs after a few minutes and it wasn't too long before Peter he said he thought he needed to get on his way. So he excused himself and left. I think I probably knew at the time that, man, that probably wasn't a very smart thing to do. The, the obvious smart thing for me to have done would have been saying, no, no, no. If he wants to smoke a joint, you know, we'd be happy to do that. But we should have kept Coke out of the picture. Um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't but a few weeks, maybe a few months actually went by. When Peter ended up writing a prescription for Quaaludes for an assistant, it has nothing to do with the normal party, just on his own. And um, Quaaludes back then were kind of the party drug. If you, if you did Quaaludes, uh, whoever you were with, uh, we used to say, don't ever take Quaaludes when you're home alone with the dog, you know. <laughs> so in uh, any event, he had written the prescription for his assistant, but he'd written it under a fake name. So because she worked at the White House and he didn't want to, you know, embarrass anybody. Well, somehow it came out and there was this big scandal of Peter Bourne caught writing a script in the, in the name for Quaaludes, et cetera. Well, at that point, I began to get calls from Jack Anderson with the Washington Post and other journalists who, by the way, had been at that party, this one assistant of Jack Anderson's and uh, saying, Keith. Uh, we got to go with this story about Bourne snorting coke at your party. I said, no, 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 not me, man. You know, I, that, that's not me. I don't know anything about that. But as I say, the one guy had actually been in the room. He couldn't use himself as a source, but he knew damn well it was accurate. So that held for a few days. And then at some point, he called me and said, the guy, the, again, the assistant to uh, Jack Anderson, he, he called me up and said, Keith, we're going with this story. It's going to go tomorrow morning, uh, you know, 400 papers throughout the country are going to have it in our column. But please let me know if this is not accurate. And I said something like, I will neither confirm nor deny. Well, that's a stupid thing that I'd heard other politicians use. But obviously, everybody knows when you say that you're really saying, well, you're right, but I'm not I don't want to be on the record or whatever. Well, I get up the next morning in the Washington Post front page as quoting me as saying, I neither confirm nor deny that Peter Bourne snorted coke at our party. Well, within a few hours, Peter Bourne had to resign as a drug czar. Uh, I realized that I was in trouble in, in terms of my ability to be effective running normal. So within maybe six months, I think, before I stepped aside as executive director, because I realized that no, people were afraid to deal with me. I, they were afraid that I was too hot to handle. I stayed on the normal board for a few more years, but essentially I stepped aside and did other public interest work from 1980 to 1994. When I came back to normal, I was invited back on the board. In 95, I was invited to serve as executive director for another decade, which I did. And then in 2005, um, I stepped aside and uh, began to serve as legal counsel to the organization, a position I still hold today. So I've spent most of my adult life legalizing marijuana, but somewhere in between there, 
I was the executive director, for example, of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, which is the bar association that specializes in criminal law and did some other public interest work. I lobbied for family farmers. Uh, Willie Nelson was a client of mine and the American Ag Movement, et cetera. And during this time, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, you read stuff online to actually hear it. And uh, this might be a random thing to say. For some reason, I uh, I watch like Narco Wars sometimes on TV, and and they talk about Peter Bourne, and I and I remember reading this about this you know, incident with you too, and I realized how significant he really was, and maybe how significant this event <laughs> really was. You know, kind of for him and and you, uh, you know, kind of pivoting the direction that you're headed. So tell, when you when you went into that other work from 1980 to 1994, uh, working for the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and lobbying for the uh, family farmers, was that work impactful for you? I mean, or was it kind of like, hey, I got to go find something else to do, but I, I'm not, I wish I was doing kind of the more passionate work that I was doing before. I mean, what was it? What was that feeling like? Oh, I definitely missed um, not being with normal. I mean, that was always the big passion of my adult life. On the other hand, I will have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed representing criminal defense lawyers, for example. I thoroughly enjoyed lobbying for family farmers. I, I grew up on a family farm myself in Southern Illinois. So uh, I identified with clients in both of those cases. So uh, I enjoyed the work. I, I certainly didn't feel like it was a terrible period of my life. On the other hand, I always knew in the back of my mind that if the opportunity arose, I'd love to go back and work with Normal again. And uh, in 1994, uh, the Normal board was reorganizing. They had asked Dr. Lester Grinspoon from Harvard uh, if he would reorganize the board and invite some new people on. And he invited me to come back. So I was delighted to accept. And the next year they asked me to step in as executive director again. Awesome. Man, this is what an incredible uh, journey you've been on. I appreciate you sharing uh, so far. Tell us about, uh, tell us about the book uh, that you wrote, uh, Smoking Pot, the 40-year fight for marijuana smokers' rights. Like, what was the, what was the purpose of writing it? Unfortunately, I haven't read it yet, but I just kind of want to hear like, right. What, 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 why you why you wrote it, uh, and you know, kind of what the result was, what, what you were looking to do, uh, with the book. Well, uh, I think it came out in 2013, I believe. And, uh, it was just before the votes, the first votes to finally legalize marijuana in Washington and Washington state and Colorado. They were the first two states in 2012. And what I was attempting to do, I was feeling like I'm getting a little long in the tooth, I'm getting a little old. And one of these days, um, if I don't write the history of normal down, it would, it would have been lost, I was concerned. So this book is primarily documenting, especially the early days of normal, but really even up through uh, the, the later years, I wanted, I wanted to uh, make a record for the role the organization had played throughout that. Um, and so uh, I finally spent the time to, to write the book and uh, High Times published it, which seems appropriate. <laughs> and uh, it, it is, I, I wouldn't claim that it, it's a, uh, a book that's of any world-class value, but for those who are interested in the trivia and nuances of the legalization movement, I think there's a lot of information there that they'll not find anyplace else. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, 
Dig through it. I don't know many people. If you're uh, if you're pro cannabis these days and you like where things have been and headed, I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to understand, you know, kind of how we got here and, and wouldn't enjoy this conversation. Like I'm so fascinated by your history and kind of what you stood for and have <clears throat> continue to uh, stand for and just how much progress you're finally making. It just it, the other the thing that blows my mind is there was so much time. You you talked about the the Gallup numbers where uh, where it was becoming less acceptable for so long. Like what kept you motivated during that time when well, you knew you were losing ground? If you remember uh, those years when I told you I had to step aside in 80 or 81 and off the normal board. Well, those years, frankly, the 1980s and the early 90s were a terrible time to be working to legalize marijuana. Think of, uh, of uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign and the parents groups, uh, we were, our side was on the defensive during those years. So uh, I'm sure it was not a lot of fun for the people who were running normal, but to their credit, we didn't lose any of our victories. All 11 of those states that we had decriminalized in the, in the early and mid seventies, they kept those decriminalization laws, even though there were efforts to, to overturn them, we managed to avoid that. Um, but I, by the time I did come back in 94, the support had come back in our direction. It actually started, the Gallup poll starts showing increased support along about 1990, and there's been no looking back. Um, Again, I think part of what uh, the most satisfying part of the work, uh, I should say this, we made an enormous number of mistakes along the way. We were young and inexperienced and sometimes just full of ourselves. And so when I look back at times, you know, I think one time, for example, I was having a hearing, uh, having a conference here in Washington, and I had a, a Senate uh, staffer. He was the head of the, I forget, the Criminal Justice Committee in the Senate, I think, on the staff, uh, and a real anti-marijuana zealot. But for whatever reason, he agreed to come and speak on the panel, which seemed to me kind of strange for him to do anyway. He, he knew he was coming into the lion's den. But Somebody, a guy named Aaron Kay, who's somewhat of a famous yippie, for, he's famous for throwing pies at people, not to hurt them, but to make a, a statement, a graphic statement. He comes up to me and said, Keith, I'd like to, I'd like to throw a pie at uh, Joe Nellis, was this staffer's name. Uh, what do you think? And I said, hey, go do it. You know, I, I shouldn't have, but again, I, uh, I seem to always be saying yes at times when I should have been <laughs> thinking it through. And he then comes back to me in a few minutes. He says, do you have any money that I could buy a pie with? <laughs> so I, I gave him five bucks or whatever the hell it was. Well, sure enough, as the panel gets going, he races up there and hits Joe Nellis in the face with the pie. Those are some of the kind of juvenile tactics that we used at times that I shouldn't have used. But again, uh, when we were in the early years, it was hard to get people's attention. You know, they weren't anxious to pay attention to what Norma was saying. They weren't anxious to even give any serious thought to legalization. So for us to get any media attention, sometimes we felt we kind of had to be outrageous. Now, as we got further along and began to pick up, you know, 40, 45 percent, and then finally uh, even 50 percent support for legalization, obviously uh, it was easier for us to get the attention of the mainstream media and also by then we were all getting a little older and I think realizing that 
some of those tactics were counterproductive. <laughs> they, may, they may have been fun to throw pies in people's faces, but it's not a strategy I would recommend for anyone in politics. <laughs> no, I love it. So looking back just at the cannabis in marijuana industry and, and uh, you have such a credible background because I, you know, you think about at least my, myself just being involved in helping hire C-level folks for the cannabis industry dating back five years ago. I mean, that's such a small sample of history. There was so much that happened before that. And so just, just thinking through what, what were the biggest wins for the industry? Obviously, in 1996, California legalized, or legalized medically. That was obviously probably one of the bigger wins. But what else do you look at since 1996? Like, how did the chips fall to get us to where we're at today? Because if I'm going to ask anybody that question that I, that I trust that's going to give me the correct answer and information, it's you. So I kind of want to just uh, ask you, yeah. you know, what, what, what happened since, what, what other victories? How did, how did this sequentially happen? You're, you're right, by the way, to break it into sections, at least in, in my analysis. You had the period in the 70s when we focused on the National Marijuana Commission report and decriminalizing marijuana. Then we had, starting in about 1990, we had a big drive to legalize the medical use of marijuana. The first state to do it was California in 96, but followed very shortly by a, by a whole number of other states. Now, it's interesting to note that all of those early victories, not the decriminalization in the 70s, but all the early victories uh, in the 90s came by way of voter initiative. Uh, the people were ahead of our elected officials. Our elected officials were still concerned that somehow they were going to be uh, tired uh, as being radical and out of the mainstream if they supported legalization. So even though the polls were showing that we were picking up more and more public support, we still did not have much support in the state and federal legislatures. So most of the early victories, both with medical use and with full adult use starting in 2012, came first by voter initiative where we could bypass the legislatures. Now, here's what you have to keep in mind there only half the states offer a voter initiative as a way to change public policy. The other half, you simply don't have it. You have no choice but to pass it through the state legislature. So it was terribly important for us to get to the point where we could begin to move both medical use and full decriminalization through uh, state legislatures. And frankly, in the last few years, uh, we won Illinois legislatively, New York legislatively, um, New Mexico, we just won legislatively, Virginia legislatively. Um, so we, we are now at the point where uh, any state is a potential target for full legalization. Now, it's still that, uh, I've never understood this, but my entire adult life, progressive issues seem to pop up on the uh, West Coast and the East Coast, and then only later, in the Midwest, and then finally last in the South. Well, marijuana's been the, the very same way. It was a big victory for us when we picked up Michigan and Illinois in the last three or four years, for example, because you know major, uh, big uh, Midwestern states, uh, and the fact that we just won Virginia in the past few months. I mean, come on, that's a, a, a Southern state. Uh, but I will tell you, we still have a, a long way to go in Alabama and Mississippi and Oklahoma. You know, the, the Deep South is going to be the last to embrace marijuana legalization. 
Um, and that's all right. I mean, the, the, the one thing about going state by state, it allows us to experiment with different models for legalization. Let's see what works and what doesn't work. And over a period of time, uh, the, the laws get better. Frankly, the best law in the country right now, I think, is the, the new New York state law. Uh, it's the most comprehensive. For example, in New York state, uh, they're both, they're going to license smoking lounges as they are in a number of other states now they're starting to. Uh, otherwise, even in the states that have legalized marijuana, uh, there, you still have to smoke it at your home or someone else's home. Well, beer drinkers go to bars or, you know, they don't have to sit home and drink and neither should marijuana smokers. Uh, so we're beginning to loosen that up. But in New York, for example, they even now, that new law allows any place you're allowed to smoke tobacco legally in New York, you're now allowed to smoke marijuana, including uh, there's a uh, state fair going on right now where they're allowing it. I forget, I, I guess it's in Albany or someplace and they said it's working fine. They have designated smoking areas and you can either smoke cigarettes or marijuana. Uh, the reason that's important is because for a lot of people, uh, if you live in an apartment house or something, you can't smoke anything. Most of them don't allow any kind of smoking. Well, the only place those people have to smoke marijuana is to walk on the streets. Well, it used to be that's where most of the black and brown people got arrested on marijuana charges. They were they were walking down the street sharing a joint and somebody sees them and cuffs them. Uh, so New York has said, no, we're going to make sure people have, if it's going to be legal to smoke, people have to have a place to smoke it. So uh, it, uh, these these later laws are obviously more comprehensive uh, and more offer more protection than the first set of laws did. Uh, but we're at that point now where, you know, as I say, the latest several uh, national polls have shown 70% of the public now support full marijuana legalization. Uh, nearly 90% support the medical use of marijuana. But uh, the, the fact that we have seven out of 10 Americans is really almost breathtaking to think how far we came from 12% when we started. Did you believe it would ever get here? I mean, in the bottom of your heart, did you well, believe I certainly it? thought we would win. I don't know if I could imagine we'd ever have 70%. I mean, I thought we might win it because uh, people weren't paying that much attention. And if we did a good job of lobbying the state legislature, maybe we could slip it in as part of a crime bill. You know, there are different ways you sometimes get things passed. Uh, I'm not sure that I ever realized that we would be at the point where uh, elected officials want to support it because it's that popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where, now, what by else? By the way, it's also the tax money, I should add. <laughs> yeah, the uh, tax as, revenue. As long, I've been... as long as marijuana was considered uh, a vice or uh, uh, kind of evil, uh, uh, then you, elected officials were not willing to really discuss the appeal of tax money. It'd be like saying, well, you could legalize prostitution too, but you know it's evil. We wouldn't want to make money off prostitution. So for a long time, that argument about tax money didn't carry much weight. But gradually, as more and more Americans now are accepting of marijuana, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you'd say the state next door to us is bringing in $300 million or $500 million in tax money, and they're paying for teachers and schools and drug education. Uh, so it becomes more and more uh, uh, appealing to states which five years ago wouldn't have even thought about it. So I think, uh, I, I hate to say this because I've been wrong before, but I think we are at a point of no return. I really do not believe there's any way that our opponents can turn this around. I think by now, 
we, we just have to work for a few more years to take care of the nuances. For example, there are still problems with child, um, uh, child adoption, if uh, child custody in a number of states, in fact, the majority of them, if a nosy neighbor smells marijuana smoke and uh, you've got minor children in your apartment and they call the child welfare agency, they will send someone out to examine your house to see if it's clean enough for you to raise kids in a healthy environment. In other words, the presumption is if you smoke marijuana, you live in a filthy house. They make you take a drug education course and a parenting course. Now in the end, in most cases, you still get to keep the kids, but that is total bullshit that you'd have to fight to retain custody simply because you smoke marijuana. Uh, the same thing is true for DUIDs. There are a number of states where if you're pulled over and you have any THC in your system, you are considered uh, guilty of a DUID without any evidence that you were impaired. Well, unlike alcohol, which cycles through your system in just a few hours, with marijuana, it stays for several days in your system. And if you're a long-term smoker, for several weeks, but you're only impaired for maybe 90 minutes. So we, we still have a lot of small things like that that we need to resolve. Our goal at Normal is we think marijuana smokers should be treated fairly in all aspects of their lives. So we've got some work to do, but it's nice to be at the place where we can begin to solve some of these smaller problems. We don't have to always be dealing with people going to jail for long periods of time. Yeah, no, I'm glad you shared that. I was going to go to the next thing is what, what, you know, where else, uh, what else do we need to accomplish? And you've kind of got into some nuance, which is helpful for, for people to understand that there's still uh, still some headway uh, to be made uh, as far as uh, decriminalization and legalization in you know different ways and changing different legislation. Well, and, and by the way, job discrimination, for example, in most states today, even those that have fully legalized marijuana, if a private employer wishes to maintain what they like to call a drug-free workplace, it's not drug-free, by the way, their employees can go out at lunch and drink six or eight beers and come back to work. But they, if they want to maintain what they like to call a drug-free workplace, they can drug test you anytime they want. And if you test positive for THC without any evidence that you came to work in an impaired condition, they can fire you. And it happens all the time to lots of people. Now, there are at least a dozen states where we've been able to get legislation adopted that uh, outlaws unfair job discrimination that requires them to show you came to work in an impaired condition. So again, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's pleasant that we're far enough along in the process that we can begin to deal with those issues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar. I, I've owned <coughs> recruiting companies before this. We did a lot of uh, contract hire in the hourly sector, sometimes in manufacturing plants, stuff like that. And when somebody gets hurt, they send them to a drug test right away. And if they- they positively, if they test positive, even if it was, they weren't impaired, they, there's some issues with them being insured by workers comp, which is a shame because there's in, in our opinion, obviously you and I share the same opinion, but they did nothing wrong besides having marijuana in their system from probably the night before or nights before. Uh, so you're right. There is some, uh, there are some things to overcome as far as uh, that goes, you know, a couple of things I, I want to talk about and, and you're such a humble person. I, I, I'm, you know, hopefully you can not be so humble for a minute, but you received a couple awards, actually several awards that I kind of want to talk through. And I want to more talk to through like what they mean to you. 
Uh, but you were the recipient of the Richard J. Dennis Drug Peace Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Drug Policy Reform. Uh, so, and I just kind of, and then I'll, I'll mention a couple others and maybe we can talk about these a little separate. And then in 2010 and 2012, respectively, you received the Al Horn Award for advancing the cause of justice for Normal's legal committee and uh, the High Times Lifetime Achievement Award. What do these awards mean to you? Uh, like, what, 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 are the, what does that all mean to you? Well, I, you know, I, of course, I'm, I'm proud as I'm, I'm now 77 years old. And so I can look back and say, well, that, you know, it feels good that uh, some people appreciated the work that we've done. But I will tell you mostly, uh, the, the awards are an afterthought. You know what I mean? Uh, we, were, uh, we were motivated by our passion for the project. And whether or not people liked it or didn't or appreciated it or didn't uh, wasn't a big factor in, in my motivation. Uh, but again, I don't mean to, to be rude to people. Of course, I'm always flattered when someone decides they want to give me an award for something I've done with Normal. Um, I, I do think that what Normal uh, should justly feel proud about is I think we were primarily the organization that's responsible for changing people's attitudes toward marijuana smokers. In other words, I, th I think prior to normal coming out front, and one of the things we did even from the very early years is we acknowledged, or I did and other people for the organization, acknowledged out front that yes, I, I am a marijuana smoker, but I also wore a coat and a tie when I said that. And any place I went to testify, or any, I, I tried to, uh, change the basic image of a marijuana smoker from some uh, lazy pothead burning his draft card in the Vietnam War, uh, you know, to a successful young doctor or lawyer or whatever, uh, because it's more accurate about who we are. And in that process, over a period of time, uh, it became far easier to deal with elected officials because they didn't have to apologize for the way we looked or the way we acted or what we might be saying. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that I think most people today, the vast majority of people, do not think a marijuana smoker is a bad person. And that's a major, major change. Yeah, yeah, major, major victory. And do you feel like this, this might be a selfish question because it's just I'm, it, more my curiosity running, but do the people that are currently... Uh, People that won licenses and perfectly in 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 the cannabis business, do they do you feel appreciation from them for everything that you've done? Because I don't know if well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think people in the industry, as you had suggested in your earlier opening, I think a lot of them came in late, and so they don't have any basis or a reason why they would know about the work we did in the seventies or eighties or nineties, et cetera. Uh, but that's all right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, what I do think, uh, Normal has always insisted that we be a consumer lobby. We represent the interest of, uh, interest of smokers, not the industry. I like the folks I know in the industry. Most of them are creative people and hardworking and entrepreneurs. And so there's a lot to like about the industry. But when it gets down to it, the industry's bottom line is they have an obligation to make money for their companies or for their corporations. They've got to show a profit. That's not always in the best interest of the marijuana smokers. So we want to make sure, for example, that the marijuana that smokers get is tested by a state certified lab so that we know it is free from pesticides or 
or uh, other adulterants. Uh, uh, we want to make sure it's labeled accurately as to the THC and the CBD, and probably as we get forth further into it, the major terpenes as well. Um, so uh, it, those are things that consumers need uh, to protect us, to make sure that, that we're protecting the health and welfare of, of marijuana smokers. The industry is less, generally, less concerned about those kinds of things. They would, you know, they're into what kind of products sell best and uh, what if, if the product that sells best is one that's 28% THC instead of 12%, they're probably going to go for the 28%. Whereas with normal, uh, our goal is not to get everybody blasted and laid back on the sofa. We want people to, uh, when they are in a relaxed setting and where uh, their obligations are taken care of, then sure, relax and share a joint and, and, and enjoy it. But uh, the best way to appreciate marijuana is to, to share it with friends. It's not, it's not to get zonked out of your head. <laughs> no, agreed, agreed. I, one of the baselines I always use, uh, and you brought this up a couple times, it just seems normal for me that any right that a cigarette smoker would have, somebody smoking marijuana should have. And I used to smoke cigarettes, I, very not a lot, but... I used to chew tobacco too. They're both horrible habits, but it just seems like any normal person would say, Hey, if you can smoke a cigarette, there a cigar, you should be able to smoke marijuana there. That's just my, you know, I just yeah, think no, everybody, I, that's like, I a, think you're right. I, uh, I, I like you. I did it a couple of times in my life when I was much younger, smoked cigarettes for a few years and then I quit and I smoked for a few years. And I quit. Fortunately, I quit for good about 40 years ago or something, but um if, if the society could learn to live with tobacco smoking, which kills millions of people every year, surely they can adjust to, uh, to marijuana smoking that has never killed anyone in the history of mankind. It is impossible to overdose on THC or on marijuana. So uh, it's, uh, it was even in one DEA hearing, we were trying to get marijuana reclassified a few, several years ago, the administrative law judge uh, said, found that marijuana is one of the safest drugs known to man. And I think that's true. There, there, there are very few downsides to smoking marijuana. Now, in, in truth, some people don't like bringing smoke into the lungs, but for those people today, uh, they can vape, you know, or they can eat edibles. Uh, there are other ways you can enjoy the marijuana high, even if you want to avoid taking smoke into your lungs. I'm an old fashioned guy. I still roll my joints by hand. I don't even use a pipe. And all I do is just smoke flour. I don't use any of the, uh, I don't use edibles and I don't use any of the concentrates. Awesome. You know, I also wanted to ask, as we were talking about this earlier, I just didn't feel like it was the right time to talk about the, the quality of marijuana that was accessible in the seventies and eighties. And I was too young to know, but what was the quality like? And the reason why I bring that up is I, I live in Arizona. So I can tell you that, you know, back when I was in the 90s when when you know we first started smoking weed as, as when we we're younger it was just you know kind of mexican dirt yeah, weed, it, we call it, it with weed, we seeds in it. it and it was yeah. but so it was was that how it was you know the rest yeah, of the country in, in the early years uh, domestic marijuana was considered ditch weed the only people that smoked it were college kids and people that you know didn't want to spend more than 10 bucks for an ounce or something uh but all all the really valued marijuana at the time was imported, some from Canada, some Thai sticks, if you remember, uh, some from Vietnam, a lot of uh, returning soldiers from Vietnam brought marijuana seeds back. But what happened during that phase was the Grow America movement started and 
after a few years, without question, we grow the finest marijuana in the world now is our domestic marijuana. It's, it's better than Holland. It's better than any place in Europe you're going to get. Uh, so, I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that the homegrown market is, is as high quality as it is today. But compared to when, when, when we were starting, no, 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 it's far better marijuana. It tastes better. You don't need to smoke as much to get the desired high. Um, and it's just nice that uh, we keep the money here in the States. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, are you on a side note? Are you going to MJ BizCon in uh, Vegas coming up in October? No, I don't think I don't go to many of those anymore. I, I was just invited to speak at one up in uh, Boston in a couple of weeks. But, you know, uh, it's it's at a point where, like in Boston, they've already legalized marijuana up there. So from the standpoint of what we're interested in, uh, I, I don't spend my time uh, helping people get rich in the industry. They can do that on their own. They don't need my help. Uh, so I don't spend as much time at those conventions as I used to, uh, because again, I think they've almost become just trade shows. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, Nothing absolutely. wrong with that, by the way. I, I, I'm delighted with the industry. I think there are hundreds of thousands of well-paying, good-paying jobs that have been created in this industry and, and billions of dollars in tax revenues been raised. So I'm, I'm delighted to see the industry flourish. There are a few states where I think they've, unfortunately, they've developed monopolies that I don't think they should. Florida's medical use, for example, I think they only have 10 licenses. And coincidentally, most of them happen to be awarded to friends of the leadership in the state legislature. <laughs> so um, whereas in most states, they don't limit the number of licenses. It's a free market. And that way it's easy for people to enter the market. Now, not everybody's going to get rich. Not everybody's going to make it, but they don't make it in a free enterprise system. That, that happens. Uh, some people uh, close down or go bankrupt or whatever, and others step in and take over. And that's going to be the same thing with marijuana. We're going to have, for the first time in some states now, Oregon's one, we have more marijuana being produced than the consumer demand can take care of. You know, when we were younger, we never thought we'd live to see that. There was always a shortage of marijuana, especially along about the fall. We used to talk about uh, waiting for the new crop to come in. And because uh, there was a period, there were several years of 70s where when you got around to July or August, Oftentimes there was no marijuana to be had for a month or two uh, until that new crop came in. Now uh, we have so much uh, high quality marijuana being grown that it actually outpaces the consumer demand. And I wasn't sure I'd ever see that happen. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how every state's different. Arizona has a, uh, a, a finite amount of licenses, which make them, uh, I think there's about 120. I don't, don't quote me on that number, but uh, so every, every state's run a little bit different, but I hear you. It's uh, it's headed in the right direction and it's a capitalist, you know, type of yeah, game yeah. like it should be. And, and uh, so we're very proud of it. But uh, Keith, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. This was so enjoyable. Uh, you, you invite, you, you gave us so many insights and just le- understanding the history of what you were able to accomplish uh, is, is just wonderful. So I can't thank you enough. You've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Y Scouts. You can find all of our podcasts, past and future podcasts at yscouts.com. And again, Keith, thanks a lot. This was absolutely amazing. You're an absolute icon. Thank you. Thanks, Max. It was nice to be with you. Awesome. I, I mean, I honestly could have, I, I wanted to, there's so much stuff that I could continue to talk about with you because I'm so fascinated by it. But uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let you go. I know I got you 15 minutes over. Oh, thanks again, fine. Keith. 
you you are uh, you are amazing. I can't wait to uh, to get this out to everybody. Thank you, thank you for having me on, Max. All right, I hope to see you again soon. You bet. I look forward to it. I- Thanks, Keith. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 right here on Star Worldwide Networks or wherever you get your podcasts.